0: History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production.
1: The history of Persia is intertwined with conquest. It began with conquest when Cyrus, king of a small city called Anshan, set out to build the greatest empire the world had ever seen. In a series of stunning campaigns, he achieved just that, becoming one of the greatest conquerors in history, and basically started Persian history. After all, you don't get the title, The Great, for nothing. But he wouldn't be the last great Persian conqueror. Other Persian rulers like Darius the Great, Mithridates I, and Ardashir I would go on to become great conquerors on their own, establishing their own great empires and legacies. If you want to hear their story, and the stories of other great conquerors, many of whom are far less famous despite their great achievements, join me ramzi Shalla, on my podcast the Conquerors podcast available on all platforms you listen through
2: you are listening to the history of persia podcast and as we've been hearing from trevor the history of the persian empire is a story of persian domination of much of the middle east and central asia but this was not the first time these lands were conquered and it would certainly not be the last I don't want to give too much away, but in the year 329 BCE, the important Persian city of Samarkand in modern-day Uzbekistan was conquered by some guy by the name of Alexander. But what's interesting about this city is that about 1700 years later, this same city, Samarkand, would be the glowing capital of an empire forged by a man known as Timur, or Tamerlane, or simply Timur. And Timur has gone down in history as a fantastic tactician, a man who supposedly never lost a battle, a great patron of the arts, and one of the most brutal conquerors of all time. From about 1365 until 1405 CE, Timur was almost constantly at war, building for himself an empire that stretched from modern-day Turkey to India, from Syria to the Russian steppe, and I want to know how and why this happened. If that sounds interesting to you and you want the story of Timmer told by a guy who talks too fast and has loud neighbors, then check out my show, The Timmer Podcast. Find out more about it at timurpodcast.com or listen to it in most places where you find podcasts. And with that said, take it away, Trevor.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. This is episode 112, King Darius Escapes. Last time, we followed Alexander the Great as he plunged ever deeper into the Persian heartland. Babylon had surrendered following the Battle of Gaugamela. Susa opened its gates without a fight. The Uxian hill tribes tried to exact tribute from Alexander, only to be crushed and have Alexander exact tribute from them. Satrap Ariobarzanes held firm at the Persian gates, inflicting massive damage on the invaders in that narrow pass, but the Macedonians made it into a Persian Thermopylae, trekking through the mountains to circumvent Parsa's defenses and wipe them out from behind. After that... Tiridates, treasurer of Persepolis, turned over the grand palace of Darius the Great only for the Macedonians to ransack the outer city and throw a five-month party in the palace of Xerxes before, under unclear circumstances, they burned the entire complex to the ground. As Alexander approached Ecbatana in May of 330 BCE, Darius III realized he simply wasn't prepared for another round of pitched combat and fled, ceding the last Achaemenid royal capital to the lord of all Asia. Satrap Orontes of Armenia returned to Van and dug in on his own, while Atropates of Media was left to surrender his satrapy to Macedon as well. Now Darius III was a man on the run albeit in lavish style, with the survivors of Gaugamela and some fresh Median troops traveling alongside the great king's gilded chariot. The royal court had, let's say, dwindled somewhat at this point, with satraps, generals, and nobles of all stripes either dead or deserted to Alexander's side, Darius's inner circle was something of a ragtag group. Of course, you had the king himself and the major players I've mentioned before, namely Satrap Bessos of Bactria and Barsaentes of Drangiana and Ericosia. In addition to those prominent satraps, Darius also had Artabazus, the ex-satrap of Hellespontine Phrygia, who had been a political hostage at court since Artaxerxes III, had allowed him to return from exile in Macedon, of all places. There was also Nabarzanes, up until now apparently a prominent military official as commander of the Royal Cavalry Guard, but without a political office. There may have been others in their company, but we don't hear about them. This retreat in force was fleeing eastward, first to the ancient and sacred city of Raga in eastern media, modern Rey within the bounds of greater Tehran. But Alexander was on his way and closing fast. Raga was apparently not well defended enough to hold out and wait for reinforcements. So Darius had planned to buy himself some time and head for Bessus's capital, Bactra. After passing through Raga, they made for the Caspian Gates, the mountain pass south of the Caspian Sea, and the only direct route between Media and Parthia. Despite this plan, Alexander was coming up behind them even as they reached the pass itself. Even as this was happening, members of the Persian column itself were having doubts and considering abandoning Darius. The ethnic Persians and Greek mercenaries in particular had concerns about retreating to such a far-flung province and had begun to see this war as already lost. The only thing holding them back from outright desertion were Greek fears of being prosecuted as traitors to the Macedonian Empire and Persian loyalty to Darius. That's when Bessus met with the other members of the king's inner circle, away from Darius himself. The other three nobles were cautious at first, but eventually they came around on his plan. The great king was now dead weight, but he was also the only bargaining chip they had left. With four leading Persians in camp on board with the plot, they then enlisted the help of Patron, a commander of the Greek mercenaries. He, more than most, had to escape Alexander, and if betraying his current benefactor was the best way to do that, then the conspiracy would have the mercenary support. The next day, Artabazos was tasked with assuring the great king that they would make a successful escape through the heavily fortified Caspian Gates, and arrive safely in Bactria before too long. Nabarzenes and his cavalry troops very publicly paid their obeisance in front of the royal chariot before heading out. Patron and the Greeks formed up immediately behind Darius as an escort. While they were riding, Darius noticed that Patron didn't seem himself, and called him up to ride alongside the chariot for a conversation. According to Curtius, this exchange took place entirely in Greek, surprisingly suggesting that Darius himself had learned his invader's language at some point. Patron was a snitch, and quickly let Darius know what Bessus and the others were planning. Initially, they had hoped to carry out their coup on the far side of the gates, but now, afraid for his own life, Bessus spurred the conspirators to act sooner, and that night the Bactrian soldiers remained on high alert. Artabazus got cold feet and attempted to convince Darius to sneak out of the main camp and hide with Patron and the Greeks. But the king was resigned to his fate and ordered what little remained of his household, mostly eunuch servants at this point, to flee to the Greeks instead. In the commotion of this order, some of the most loyal servants refused to go, and a false report reached Bessus that Darius had already killed himself. That led the satrap of Bactria to summon Nabarzanes and rush over to the royal tent for confirmation. There, they found Darius alive and waiting for them. The game was clearly up, though and the two conspirators bound Darius in golden chains, taking him as a hostage to try an exchange with Alexander before taking their pick of the deposed monarch's personal belongings. Artabazus, already having betrayed the conspiracy, grabbed Patron, the Greeks, and any of the Persian soldiers who refused to go along with this and fled toward the Caspian gates overnight hoping to get away from Bessus before he could punish them for their betrayal. By the next morning, both rival contingents of the Persian army were on the move again, and before long, Alexander arrived in the wreckage of the looted Persian camp, finding one of Darius's interpreters, who had been abandoned after falling ill on the road. He told the Macedonians what had happened, enraging Alexander both because he, as a king, was disgusted by Bessus' behavior and because it robbed him of his chance to defeat Darius. Alexander gathered 6,000 to including his personal guard, and chased after the Persian column on horseback, hoping to catch up with a final, decisive strike. Along the way, they kept running into deserters from Bessos' column who had given up after seeing Darius taken captive. These deserters showed Alexander a shortcut through the mountains that his smaller force could use to catch up with the retreating Persians within the day. And they did. Alexander and 6,000 horsemen came pouring out of the mountains just behind the Persian line and charged into the rear of their column, throwing the whole thing into disarray. Despite this, the odds were against the Macedonians. They were outnumbered by at least double their own strength, and exhausted from riding hard for days on end. However, between the surprise attack and rapidly collapsing Persian morale in the face of an unbeatable enemy, many of the Persian soldiers simply surrendered and got out of the way. Darius III had tried to escape from the confines of his carriage, and in a split-second decision, faced with disaster, Bessus, a distant Achaemenid cousin, donned the tiara and declared himself King Artaxerxes V. He then ordered his Bactrian cavalry to loose their javelins on the royal prisoner, wounding Darius III and killing the carriage driver, causing the draft animals to flee until their yokes snapped and sent the carriage careening off the road. The usurper, Barcyantes, and Nabarzanes fled up the road with any cavalry willing to follow them. The infantry, abandoned and leaderless, surrendered en masse to the Macedonians. In the aftermath, three thousand more Persians and Iranians were dead, and thousands more prisoners were herded together at Spear Point, while Alexander searched for evidence of Darius's fate further up the road. Despite their best efforts, they didn't find anything until taking a break for water. That's when one of the Macedonian scouts spotted one of the draft animals dying in a field after being struck by Bactrian spears. As the story goes, Alexander was brought over just as Darius let out his final breaths. Darius III, born Artaciata and widely known as the Easterner, Codamanus, had risen to power under chaotic circumstances, He had righted the Persian Empire despite a crisis of rebellion unlike anything his ancestors had faced in generations, only to find himself up against a -a once-in-a-millennium tactical master from the backward highlands of southeastern Europe. He had been the great king, king of lands, king of Persia, king of this earth far and wide, and king of kings. Kushayathia Kushayathi Yanam for just six immensely turbulent years. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app, and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases helped open new doors and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Now I am going to do something a bit unusual, even for historians that hold stalwart to Persian original terminology, and start calling the new Achaemenid king by his proper regnal name, Artaxerxes V. There is a general slipping in terminology even among modern historians after Artaxerxes II. Here and there, Artaxerxes III is called Okus even after taking power. You're about equally likely to see Artaxerxes IV, as you are to see him called Arces. Darius III recovers from this trend a little bit, but the ancient sources were still wants to call him Codamanos, and very few sources actually documented the name Artaxerxes in the first place. Basically, nobody calls Bessos Artaxerxes, but I will. Despite everything collapsing around him, he was still regarded as the great king by his followers, and Bactrian documents were dated to his regnal year as Artaxerxes. Alexander, equally enraged by an act of regicide and being robbed of his opportunity to properly defeat his great adversary, was forced to withdraw for the time being, going back to Raga to briefly figure out what was going on in meetings with the now numerous Persian nobles that had either joined him willingly or been captured at the Caspian gates. Upon their return to the city, they had Darius's body embalmed and prepared for transport back to Persepolis with every intention of entombing him in one of the royal necropolis. By now, there were many of these defected or disaffected nobles, and they were soon integrated directly into the A- K- Argiad court. You've got the ones we know about, Mazakis of Egypt and Mazaios of Babylon had sent their sons, Queen Mother Sisigambis, Deterra the Younger, Drapetus, Barcine, Artasa II, and her daughters. They were all there. After taking the capitals and Darius's death, another of Darius's wives joined the royal women. Curtius references another duchess without dropping a name, but implies that she may have been a daughter of Artaxerxes III. Atropates of Media was removed from his satrapy and replaced by a Persian who had defected, named Oxidates, so Atropates joined the court on campaign. And finally... Aksathreys, the late Darius's own brother, was now part of Alexander's entourage. Lower-ranking women and servants who had been enslaved were now brought in to perform with traditional Iranian song and dance for the court. Persian and Iranian soldiers that had surrendered were incorporated into the army, although captured Greeks were still held as traitors. Waiting to figure out what Bessus was planning and taking stock of who was supposed to be a prisoner and who was defecting took so long that most of the courts started to enjoy themselves. It became an extended break, and this lull in the action is where the ancient sources start to heavily criticize Alexander's more debaucherous tendencies. Of course, some of that is simply because being a young man who had ascended to become the richest, most powerful, most respected, and most feared person on Earth is enough to break anyone's brain down to its most hedonistic elements. That said, Arian, Curtius, Plutarch, and all the rest attribute Alexander's descent into constant drunken partying to a different cause— They say it was him going native, so to speak. Of course, a large part of this has to do with plain old Greek chauvinism that accused the Persians and really all West Asians of being lecherous of feet and addicted to luxury. According to them, Alexander was falling prey to their corrupting nature. Even exaggerated, though... Many of the general claims they make about this point in Alexander's career are so consistent that there must be some truth to them. The lord of all Asia had started to act the part of king of kings, even if he never formally took that title. He donned Persian dress and encouraged or even forced his Macedonian courtiers to do the same, he reveled in how the Persians prostrated themselves on the ground in reverence to royalty, a rite that the Greeks historically reserved for the gods, and how his new subjects averted their eyes out of respect for royal privacy. They feasted on Persian food and wine. Naturally, that's what they had available. But the pleasure Alexander took in this was disgusting, to his more staunchly traditional officers, particularly those elder veterans of Philip II's campaigns. Still, he was the greatest king and warlord any of them had ever seen, and they dared not challenge him or his orders in the open. So before too long... The full complement of this Greco-Perso-Macedonian army pulled itself together, set down their wineskins, and got into marching formation once again. All except Parmenion, who was left behind as Alexander's overseer in Media. Up they went through the Caspian gates and into Parthia. Once again, they were heading into uncertain territory. The intelligence maintained that Artaxerxes V and Barsantes were headed to their home territories to regroup, but it was unclear what existence they should expect from the other satrapies. The army passed through Parthia, once the seat of the likes of Histaspes, father of Darius the Great, wholly unopposed. In fact, when they reached the city that the Greeks knew as Hecatompolos, the city of a hundred gates, now known as Cumis, they found it open. Apparently Artaxerxes V had named Nabarzanes the new satrap of Hyrcania, and Fratiphernes, the satrap of Parthia, had fled north with him to escape the oncoming Greek barrage. Hecatompolos was also where the trouble started for the Macedonian soldiers. A rumor swept through camp that must have been fueled by pure hopes and dreams since its contents seem entirely unbelievable. Word among the Macedonian infantry was that Alexander was now satisfied and ready to go back to Macedon. The Phalangites started packing up their gear and getting ready for that return trip, to their king's absolute horror. He summoned his generals to talk with their soldiers and made a big public speech about the strength and perseverance of Macedon, promising to leave another round of veterans behind as a garrison and restock with local recruits. But the underlying message was clear. They were not done until Alexander ruled everything that Darius the Great once had. As they prepared to advance into Hyrcania, Alexander received a letter from Fratifernes and Nabarzanes voicing their intent to surrender. They met with Alexander at the Hyrcanian capital of Zadrakarta and turned themselves in along with most of southern Hyrcania. Various regional governors had to be replaced or reconfirmed and supplied with a Macedonian officer who acted as a sort of king's eye for Alexander. And in the course of this northbound expedition, they also found Artabazus and the pro-Darius troops that had deserted during the coup. Artabazus and the Persians were accepted as defectors, but the Greek mercenaries in their company, including Patron, were taken as traitors who had defected long after the Macedonians declared war with Persia. This is also where they set up the tribute expectations for surrounding regions that also surrendered, like Chorasmia, and at least nominally the Dahai Scythian Confederation. Craterus had been sent forward to scout and returned while they were still in Hyrcania with no sign of Artaxerxes' movements. So they marched east into the provinces of Margiana and Aria, both of which were hostile, and the Margians in particular were governed directly by Bactria, and therefore Artaxerxes V himself. Primarily encompassing the border regions of modern Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, most of Margiana's inhabitants were still semi-nomadic outside the city of Merv. These pastoralists were very different from most of the Persian forces sent to face Alexander up to this point. Even when they did encounter nomads, it was in the context of a larger battle. Alexander's only direct encounter with vaguely similar tactic was his brief campaign against the Scythian horsemen before his invasion of the Persian Empire. So the sudden appearance of hit-and-run guerrilla tactics near the Hyrcanian-Margian border caught the Macedonians off guard. Of course, there was no way the Margians could actually stop the invasion on their own, as there was simply an insurmountable numerical difference. However, the guerrillas could slow the invasion's progress, and Curtius describes their first encounter as a debacle rather than a battle. The Margians attacked with arrows and javelins before retreating to many separate hill forts near the Hyrcanian border. Alexander ordered his men to assault the stockade walls, and they were overwhelmed, but that was by design. The Margians simply fled out the back doors and into the mountains, covered with dense forests and steep cliffs. Curtius says they dumped foliage on the ground to obscure the road and created a maze of ensnaring branches that blocked the Macedonians as they tried to pursue. The interwoven fasces of... Fresh, supple branches repelled any attempt to hack through with axe and sword. Caught in the Margian trap, the Macedonians came under further missile fire from the Margian skirmishers. They were even forced to encamp in the forest overnight, and while the lord of all Asia slept, a band of highland raiders swarmed his camp and stole his most prized possession. The great black warhorse, Eucephalus. The king was furious. For the next four days, the Macedonians gave up on the entangled roots and branches blocking the path and started felling trees and digging up earth to bury the Margian snares. This may have been the largest invading army Margiana had ever seen, and it was certainly the largest, maybe the only, invasion faced in the last 200 years. Alexander's army seemed to be literally moving mountains. They had just torn apart that much of the landscape. Terrified, the Margians were forced to surrender and be taken as hostages. Of course, Alexander had barely scraped the western edge of the province, but that didn't stop him from declaring Atophridates, the former satrap of Lydia, the new satrap of Margiana under Macedonian rule. Bucephalos was returned to Alexander and they began marching into Margiana proper with the intent of going straight for Bactra and bringing this war to a close. A small party of 41 Macedonians were sent south into Aria to receive the satrapy's surrender but were killed on orders of satrap Satabarzanes, forcing Alexander to turn around and pursue him instead sending Craterus ahead to begin the assault on the Aryan capital, Artakawana. The Macedonian response was so swift that Satabarzanes panicked and fled toward Bactria with his personal guards, leaving the rest of the Aryans to defend for themselves. Craterus arrived and Alexander came soon after. They shifted some units around, but in the end Craterus had the situation handled. Alexander left him there with a Persian named Arsikis in charge of besieging Artakawana, while the lord of all Asia personally went after Satabarzanes, catching up to the Aryan satrap on a tree-lined plateau, where they were bombarded by horsemen with missile fire again. Initially, the Macedonians tried the same tactic of clearing trees and dirt to build up a ramp, that they had used in Margiana, but these cliffs were just too steep and too high. Instead, the Macedonians took the trees they had already felled and piled them together in a massive bonfire, downwind from Sata Barzini's position, blanketing the cliffs in thick, dark smoke. Ash and sparks drifted over, and the suffocating fumes and heat overwhelmed the Arians, The fire went wild, spreading onto the cliff and pinning the defenders in place. Some leapt off the edge, some fought until Macedonian arrows caught them, some were captured alive, if just barely. Either way, Satabarzenes died, and Alexander returned to Artakawana, where Craterus had nearly broken through the gates but the commander deferred to his king and allowed Alexander the honor of leading their way through the breach. Even now, thousands of miles from home, the Macedonian supply line still stretched all the way back to Europe, and fresh recruits from Greece, Thrace, and Lydia caught up with them as they were preparing to leave Artakawana. From there, they continued southeast into Drangiana to face Barcaentes, who had gathered a sizable army at his capital, also called Drangiana, which is modern Zaranj, Afghanistan. However, the satrap was not prepared for battle yet, so he too fled, leaving his army confused and without direction. Drangiana surrendered as Barciantes entered Erakosia only to be apprehended by local nobles who didn't want him bringing a Macedonian siege to their door. As usual, reaching a satrapal capital meant taking some time for rest and reorganization, but Drangiana also saw some dramatic descent in the Macedonian camp. Per usual, Curtius's version is long, inventive, and overly detailed. Arians is short, sweet, and to the point, etc., etc. Most of the details don't really matter, but some are just interesting enough to make a better story. A Macedonian noble named Dimnos was involved in both a pederastic relationship with a boy called Nicomachus and a plot to assassinate Alexander. The thing is, Dimnos was not an agent of Artaxerxes V. Many of the Macedonian nobles had enough of Alexandrian ambition. The king of Macedon was now too much the lord of all Asia, too debauched, too drunk with power and wine, and too far from home. In the course of Dimnos' abuse, Nicomachus learned about the plot and several of the conspirators— so he reported it to Kebelinos, another noble, but he too was tangentially associated with the coup. After two days, Kebelinos decided better of it and went to another noble, Metron, who took it upon himself to incarcerate Kebelinos for his involvement, tying him up in the city armory before going to Alexander the king sent men to arrest Dimnos and retrieve Cabellinos for questioning. Alexander was angered that Cabellinos hadn't come immediately and had the plotter formally arrested for his treachery. Dimnos, on the other hand, knew why members of the royal companions were at his tent, so he drew a sword and attacked the guards, but was subdued, captured, and brought to Alexander anyway. Once in front of the king, Dimnos revealed everything. The man at the center of this scheme was Philotas, Alexander's personal friend and the son of Parmenion. Like Alexander, Philotas was young and had both his own and his father's successes to gain respect among the soldiers and the officers. Many Macedonians, and Greeks to a lesser extent, were beginning to feel that Alexander was too Persian. They wanted to make Philotas their new, more Macedonian king, who could right the ship as they saw it. The issue is, Philotas was their chosen candidate because he was young. The son may have commanded respect, but his father commanded Macedonian loyalty especially if they planned to overthrow a dynasty that stretched back into the mythic past. And Parmenion was still all the way back in Media, hundreds of miles to the west. Alexander couldn't act too hastily without risking a full-blown rebellion. Philotas himself was among the nobles present for Dimnos’ interrogation, so Alexander had the others prevent him from leaving the royal tent quietly. Then came a trial before the royal court, with Alexander as the presiding judge and jury. Craterus in particular advocated for Philotas' immediate execution, for both selfish and practical reasons. Craterus and Philotas were political rivals in the companion cavalry, but Craterus was also a close friend of the king himself, and recognized that Alexander was unlikely to forgive this trespass, because allowing a potential usurper to hang around would only cause trouble. Still, Alexander and his advisors worried about Parmenion. Plus, the full extent of the plot was still unknown. There could be other conspirators waiting in the wings. Philotas was interrogated and tortured, and other known parties were questioned to find out who was involved. An intercepted letter from Parmenion soon revealed that he was, in fact, directly masterminding the plot, as was his younger son, Nicanor. There was only one thing left in Alexander's arsenal. Parmenion and his sons and their co-conspirators all had to go. If they put it off any longer, Parmenion would get suspicious and rebel anyway. So representatives from the court were sent to Parmenion under false pretenses where they detained and executed a man who had been like an uncle to Alexander all his life. One of his father's close friends and one of the leading voices in support of Alexander during his early days on the throne. Philotas and the other men Alexander had long considered kin-like friends were executed in Drangiana, including the sons of many prominent officers. If you can remember back a few episodes to the first man to try and assassinate the king, Alexander Lynchesteos, son-in-law of Antipater, the regent back in Macedon, well, this provided the opportunity to do away with him as well. Everyone present understood why this had to happen. But once the deed was done, it only widened existing divisions. Many of the men had lost friends or men they admired, and many of them shared the sentiments that had driven the coup in the first place. Alexander's right to rule was quietly being questioned up and down the ranks. They were far from home, the action was dying down, and they didn't seem any closer to killing this Artaxerxes V and ending the war. But it was time to move out. They marched through Arachosia, largely in the west of modern Afghanistan, slowly trekked along the edge of the Hindu Kush, which the Greeks thought were an extension of the Caucasus Mountains, forming a ring around all the lands in the world. It was slow-going and treacherous, but largely unopposed by the Arachosians. In 329, they finally reached the southern bank of the Oxus River and crossed into Bactria, braced for one more battle with the Caymanid forces to defeat Artaxerxes V, thinking that with the endless grass of the steppe he had nowhere left to run. Alexander's men constructed crude rafts and crossed, but Artaxerxes, hoping to protract the campaign and exhaust the Macedonians just a little more, withdrew to Sogdiana and a fortress called Notaka. There he was met by Spitamenes, Dataphernes, and Oxiartes, Achaemenid regional governors who were supposed to assist him in fighting the Macedonians when they arrived. Instead, they took Artaxerxes V prisoner, and made him just plain old Bessus once again. He was no king. Alexander, a highland marauder from the far side of the world, was in Bactria. This war had been lost for years. Darius and Bessus just refused to acknowledge that. When the Macedonians reached Nautaka, Ptolemy was placed in command of the army to establish a perimeter while Alexander went to meet with the Persians. Alexander demanded that Bessus be led out of the city naked, on a leash attached to a literal dog collar around his neck. Spidomenes and Datafernes allowed this, and Bessus was brought to Alexander in truly humiliating fashion. There, the lord of all Asia interrogated the former great king and asked why he had betrayed Darius III. Bessos replied that it was not his decision alone, but made in council with other nobles in hopes of securing Alexander's favor and saving their own lives. They had realized the high opinion Alexander reserved for royalty all too late. Alexander ordered his men to flog the regicidal traitor, and with each lash of the whip, the king demanded that his defeated foe repeat his motives for killing Darius. When Bessus was bleeding and near death, Alexander relented and had him shipped off to Bactra for an ignoble crucifixion. Bessus had been King Artaxerxes V, and claimed to be the great king, rightful king of Persia and pharaoh of Egypt, king of lands, king of this earth far and wide, and even king of kings for just under one year. He was the last of the Achaemenids and the last man to claim many of those titles, including Khushaiathia, Yanam. And thus... The Achaemenid dynasty was broken, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Until next time. If you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you will find my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and plenty of other things including the support page to financially support this project. There are all sorts of ways to do that, but most importantly, there's patreon.com slash historyofpersia. You can sign up for a monthly subscription ranging from $1 to $20, and access to things like ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and discounted merchandise. Even if you don't want to subscribe, you can also visit the show's store, either through historyofpersiapodcast.com. Or historyofpersia.launchcart.com. You can also support this show for free by leaving a rating or review on your podcast app of choice. I always love to see your feedback, but even better than that, tell your friends to listen to the History of Persia. Share it on social media at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads, and just History of Persia on Twitter and everything else that's trying to be Twitter. Thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia.